This episode is brought to you by Matsing. Does your venue need a high capacity, reliable network to provide a better fan experience? Did you know that Matsing's innovative lens antennas provide the highest capacity connectivity in stadiums and arenas globally, with only a few antennas needed to cover entire venues? Contact Matsing at matsing.com to discuss your venue's advanced connectivity needs. This episode is also brought to you by Extinet Systems. Connecting customers quickly, securely, and reliably to networks and solutions is more crucial than ever. Extinet Systems powers the networks that make buildings run with secure 5G and fiber-neutral host solutions found in thousands of locations, relied upon by some of the largest sports and entertainment venues in the country. With services that include infrastructure, indoor-outdoor mobility, private wireless networks, and enterprise connectivity, Extinet provides businesses with what they need to thrive. Visit extinet.com to learn more. That's E-X-T-E-N-E-T dot com. Sports stadiums and large public venues come in all shapes and sizes. Some have domes, some have natural grass fields, some have banked concrete ovals where cars drive fast. While no two stadiums may be perfectly alike, there's one thing that all stadiums today have in common, a reliance on technology. This is the Stadium Tech Report podcast, where we talk to people on both ends of the stadium technology equation, including the stadium technology teams who deploy it and use it, and the vendors and service providers who supply it. I'm Paul Kapuska, editor of the Stadium Tech Report and your host on the Stadium Tech Report podcast. While the return of fans to full venues is generally seen as a good thing, the resumption of events has also seen the rise of some unintended and unwanted consequences, mainly in the areas of venue safety and security. Venue owners and operators have seen a noticeable rise in uncivil behavior by crowds, caused perhaps in part by tensions created by new processes for things like entry and security, which can be doubly troubling when combined atop a general post-COVID stress that is still a worldwide thing. Luckily for venues, there exists an entity that is designed to help stadium operators learn about and deploy the latest in safety and security technology and best practices. The National Center for Spectator Sports Safety and Security, known best by its acronym, NCS4, is an incredible resource for large venue operators with FEMA-certified classes and other e-learning tools addressing topics like crisis and evacuation procedures, as well as reviews. Join us as we talk to NCS4 Executive Director Stacy Hall and Daniel Ward, Director of Training and Exercise, about how the NCS4 came to be and what its role is going forward in the ever more critical space of safety and security for large public spaces. Well, I'd like to welcome both Stacy and Daniel here today. Appreciate your uh, joining the STR podcast. What I'd like to start out with is, and, and Stacy, maybe you're, you're the best to answer some of this because I believe you were sort of the genesis of this, if, if I'm correct. Can you give our, our listeners just some background on who the NCS4 is and how it got started and sort of why it ended up where it is? 
maybe then after that, I'll turn to both you and Daniel for a little background on how both of you got here. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Thanks for having us on the on the show today. The NCS4 was established in 2006 and is the nation's only academic center devoted to the study and practice of sport safety and security. We are located at the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, as you mentioned, and our mission is to support the sport and entertainment industries through training, education, research, uh, and outreach initiatives. We are very fortunate to have a national uh, advisory board, uh, as well as industry-specific advisory committees to help guide our strategic priorities. We do serve multiple industries, including professional, collegiate, high school, marathon, uh, and endurance events, and also the entertainment uh, facility space. <clears throat> the creation of the center uh, came about 16 years ago, uh, as, I, as I said, in 2006, when uh, I and my, my colleagues at the time, Dr. Walter Cooper and Dr. Lou Marciani, submitted a, a grant proposal to DHS FEMA to develop risk management training for intercollegiate safety and security multi-agency teams. At that time, uh, I had just finished my PhD studies and my dissertation had focused on security standards for college sports venues. And we realized there was much variation in the level of and support for security measures uh, across divisions and and conferences. And so this evidence we used as justification for the multi-million dollar award to develop our first FEMA approved course. And our goal with that course was to provide a common risk management curriculum to help with the planning and implementation uh, of risk mitigation strategies across NCAA schools. Of course, another outcome was the establishment of the center uh, to focus on sports safety and security issues through not only training initiatives, but also research and uh, outreach and engagement uh, activities. Uh, you know, fast forward to today, we have seven uh, FEMA approved courses in our catalog covering topics such as evacuation management, incident management, crime management, and um, crisis uh, commu- communication. So, uh, training is one of our key mission areas. Um, the two other key mission areas uh, is research and, and outreach. Uh, you know, we publish industry research reports, and I know we'll get into uh, one of those reports in, in a few minutes. Uh, we host a research seminar and have a research affiliate program where faculty from various disciplines collaborate on uh, sport security research, and a lot of those outcomes are presented uh, through our research seminar series or at one of our events, such as the conferences or industry forums. Our goal is really to try and bridge that gap between academia and the practitioner. And then I'll, I'll, I'll just conclude with that the last pillar of our, our mission is outreach, and we take really great pride in our events and industry engage, engagement opportunities. You know, our annual conference attracts over 500 professionals and each year, and we, we always have a sold-out exhibit hall for technology solution providers in this space. Our industry-specific forums, like I mentioned, we do serve those multiple industries, so it, it is good to get each of those uh, professionals together to discuss issues and challenges and best practices affecting their specific uh, industries. And it really feeds into our best practices that we publish online, which has been a tremendous resource uh, for the industry. Other resources, I know Daniel's been heavily involved in 
developing guidelines and considerations for patron screening, touch the screening, cybersecurity. Um, and we've been fortunate to uh, work with DHS cybersecurity and security agencies on some of these COBA-branded products. You know, lastly, I'll, I'll just mention that we do collaborate with technology solution providers through our Technology Alliance uh, Consortium. I know Daniel will obviously cover the tech alliance in a little bit more de- detail later in the show. Sure. And, and Daniel uh, Ward is also joining us from NCS4. Daniel, if you could just tell us a little bit about bit about your background and what your role is at the organization. Uh, here at the center, I oversee several of our, our training and education programs. So I, I lean heavily into the initiatives we have with the Department of Homeland Security, our e-learning initiatives, um, training materials, guidelines, content, whatever resources we can produce that will help the practitioner is really my focus area. Um, I come from a practitioner background. Prior to joining the center in 2014, I spent right at a decade in emergency management as a practitioner where I was heavily involved with um, anything from anti-terrorism initiatives to emergency planning and operations. Um, and again, since joining the center, my focus has really been on making sure we were bridging the gap between academia and the practitioner. So trying to get relevant information and resources in front of the people who need it most. That's great. Uh, and I mean, it just it sort of plays with what you know we've learned about our audience, too, just from the pure technology side. It's that the sharing of information just seems like a given to participants in this industry. It just seems like it's incredible to have this resource there. Can both of you or maybe Stacy um, talked a little bit? This work clearly is always important, but I, I'm wondering if if what the the center has done is gotten even more critical over the past couple of years. You know, Paul, our our mission has has never changed in 16 years. However, emphases on certain programs or the development of new programs have occurred depending on the needs of the industry. As a resource center, we do want to be nimble enough to switch gears, adjust or, or modify our offerings. And, you know, the threat environment continues to evolve. Our, our first grant that I had just mentioned was awarded in 2006. We were not too far removed from the tragic events on 9-11. And terrorism continues to be a threat that is evaluated through risk assessments of sports and special events. And the evolving methods of attack, you know, IEDs, vehicle-borne IEDs, stabbing incidents, active shooters, vehicle ramming, and some of the other emerging threats today we're seeing, such as cybercrime, drone intrusion, and the insider threat. Other threats, such as inclement weather and crowd management issues, can present real problems with horrible consequences if not handled properly. Um, you know, when we're considering new training programs, we always conduct a needs assessment to determine if there are any gaps. And the last two training courses requested were crowd management and public information and emergency notification, which essentially is crisis communications. We've also had requests for additional resources on weather planning and staff training recruitment uh, and retention. Yeah, the, the weather planning is an interesting one, right? Coming up we discuss why fan behavior has become much less civil and whether or not it is a temporary thing or something that's here to stay. More with Stacy Hall and Daniel Ward after the break. This episode is brought to you by Matsing. Does your venue need a high capacity, reliable network to provide a better fan experience? Did you know that Matsing's innovative lens antennas 
provide the highest capacity connectivity in stadiums and arenas globally, with only a few antennas needed to cover entire venues. Contact Matsing at matsing.com to discuss your venue's advanced connectivity needs. If you like our show, why not take a minute now to subscribe to make sure you don't miss another great episode. Simply go wherever you look for fine podcasts and search for Stadium Tech Report. We can be found on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on SoundCloud. You should also visit our website at stadiumtechreport.com and sign up for our email newsletter, where you will find links to all our past podcast episodes, as well as all the breaking news, analysis, and commentary that will tell you all you ever need to know about the Stadium Technology Marketplace. I read through the results from your uh, most recent survey of, of security professionals, and it's great stuff. And for all the podcast listeners, we'll have a link on our um, on our page to for people to be able to see this report. But the the one um, data point that seemed to rise above the others, or, or just you know, sort of jumped out to me, was the sentiment toward fan behavior from the security professionals who were responded to the survey. And I think anybody who's been to an event in the past year or two would probably readily agree that you know the survey results said fans have gotten less civil. People just at events seem in general lately seem less amenable to things like staying in lines mm-hmm. and following procedures if they feel like they're being wrong. Like I have to wait in line, forget it. I'm just going to jump past the gate. I have two questions about this. It, it both of you can feel free to answer. Is this kind of behavior here to stay? Or is it a short-term thing? And can technology help this in the short term? I I hope this behavior is not here uh, to stay. I I think event organizers and venue operators are somewhat baffled by the number of fan incidents upon returning uh, to events. I'm not sure if people just forgot how to act in public or be civil, uh, (laughs) as Paul, as you said. just, Just know how to be civil to one another. You know, but the survey that, that we conducted recently um, did indicate that most respondents, you know, over two thirds of, of venue security directors believe that fan behavior is worse or much worse than 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. And our study also suggests that COVID-19 restrictions caused increased tension uh, among fans. Um, you know, we know COVID has been a very divisive issue in the country, and I think we saw that playing out in fans' willingness to adhere to policies such as masks and social distancing. Right. The study also highlighted alcohol abuse as one of the most common forms of inappropriate fan behavior. Uh, However, the most concerning fan behavior for venue directors was fights uh, between patrons, violence uh, against staff, and, and the use of weapons. Again, Paul, just to reiterate what you had said, you know, we know in general people tend to get disgruntled or a little anxious if they have to wait in long lines, whether that's for entry into the venue, whether it's waiting in line for the restroom or concession purchases or or merchandise purchases. And, um, you know, fans, they do not want to hear for the first time that a policy or procedure has changed when they first show up at an event. So, I mean, I'll let Daniel speak to whether technology can help with some of these issues in the short term, such as digital ticketing, screening and frictionless experiences. But just a few simple things that I think venue owners and operators can do to reduce the risk of fan violence includes 
implementing an alcohol policy, establishing a fan code of conduct, and clearly commu- communicating that policy via multiple modes, and enforcing a, an ejection policy. Fans need to understand that the, there are consequences uh, for, for bad, bad behavior. So I'll, I'll hand it over to, to Daniel, and maybe he can share um, some of the technology advances and, and the impact uh, on patron ingress 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 sorry uh, on the overall experience thank you stacy and I, I do think technology is helping to identify behavioral issues that we see more rapidly it's it's making our, our staff more efficient being able to identify and, and address potential behavioral issues so uh, you mentioned it a little bit stacy but technology is also helping us to more effectively and efficiently communicate expectations to fans uh, fan codes of conduct information that's that's relevant to fans to hopefully de-escalate some behavioral issues. And, and again, for us right now, I, I can't speak to what the future holds for technology in addressing fan behaviors, but currently what we're seeing is, is technology is really supplementing our staff, helping our staff to identify the issues and appropriately address those issues. That's great. And it's interesting. There was one other data point um, from your survey that uh, sort of correlated with the survey that we just conducted, identifying staffing as a top challenge. And, and clearly, not just for stadium operation, but it's, you know, having a diminished staff is something that probably directly affects, you know, safety procedures and protocols. I, I'm just curious, were, was there any feedback on that uh, for you know, how that is best solved? I saw some talk about increased pay. That's great. But um, it, it strikes me that some of the, the new technologies, like especially in the um, security screening area, you know, with the new walkthrough gates, at least the vendors are claiming it allows you to, to operate those kind of things with a, a lower number of staff. I'm, I'm just curious if that's like a, a very good quick fix or, a, or, or, you know, at least a short-term improvement on the staffing question. From my end, some of the staffing, what we're seeing with technology and staffing, technology is not really replacing staffing. We're seeing staffing be being redeployed in areas where they're needed across the venue, whether it's acting as ambassadors for the venue or just filling in some of those gaps we see and some of the needs we have across venues. Um, When it comes to to some of those technologies, again, the technology changes and the personnel required to manage the technology may adjust with it. There may be additional needs for for staffing and there may be reduced needs for staffing. Um, In what you mentioned, you may need additional pacers. The higher throughput may cause venues to redeploy staff to help manage the crowd flow, uh, to manage secondary screening, divesting tables. There's all of these things that have to take place. So venues have to look very carefully at the technologies they're looking at deploying and make the determination on where to appropriately appropriately place their staff. So we're not seeing right now the staffing challenges we're, we're seeing across the board aren't we're not really trying to reduce our amount of staff. We're just trying to to more effectively and efficiently deploy our staff to manage our security operations. Just to you know, add to Daniel, um, you know, technology is helpful, but staffing is is an issue, and it's been expressed not only through our, our survey, but during our board meetings or advisory committee meetings. Staffing is is a problem. Uh, the recruitment staff, uh, effectively training them, and then uh, the retention rates. You know, a lot of the temporary workforce was lost during the height of the pandemic uh, as they sought opportunities elsewhere. And it did leave a void, not only in the, the numbers, 
you know, trying to ensure appropriate staff levels, but also the institutional knowledge that, that was lost. Um, you know, new employees have been difficult to find. Um, those that are hired have limited to no experience now, and, and managers at times have limited time to, to, to train them. You know, and as we've mentioned, fan behavior has been, has been a problem. It's a rising problem since spectators return to events. And the relatively new, new workforce with limited experience then plays into the capability to manage and effectively, you know, control crowds. You know, some of the ways our stakeholders, they, they find creative ways to try and recruit staff, uh, you know, increasing pay, uh, providing complimentary food, offering discounted tickets, other things such as enhancing employee recognition, awarding bonuses, you know, for or gift cards for referrals and, and job performance. But it is an issue. It, it still is something that they're grappling with and they're always trying to find ways to uh, recruit new staff members and keep them. Uh, and, and that's that's the key. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point, the institutional knowledge one, because one of the things I've seen with the, the new technologies, some of the new um, security scanning technologies is while it might need fewer people, because more people can come in, say, per gate, the screening procedure is much different because now people aren't stopped. They're not waiting for that beep. And so if there is, say, a positive test, you you have to have a, a different sort of level of education for the screeners to know that, hey, you have to grab this person, say, you know, you need a secondary screening. Coming up, how can live exercises that test the capabilities of new security technologies help both vendors and stadium operators. More with Stacy Hall and Daniel Ward after the break. This episode is also brought to you by Extinet Systems. Connecting customers quickly, securely, and reliably to networks and solutions is more crucial than ever. Extinet Systems powers the networks that make buildings run with secure 5G and fiber neutral host solutions found in thousands of locations relied upon by some of the largest sports and entertainment venues in the country. With services that include infrastructure, indoor-outdoor mobility, private wireless networks, and enterprise connectivity, Extinet provides businesses with what they need to thrive. Visit extinet.com to learn more. That's E-X-T-E-N-E-T dot com. It seems given this sort of need to train and inform staff, the resources at the NCS4 uh, would seem to be even more valuable. And uh, especially to me, I was reading through some of the white papers where you know, the NCS4 had either authorized or, or helped lead a sort of red team type testing uh, where you go in and actually actually test these things live. Daniel, can you maybe talk about the, these kind of procedures a little bit? Because it, it just seems like these are some of the most uh, helpful kind of you know things in a world where I know with security, they don't like to talk about sort of like Fight Club. You, know, the, you don't want to really talk about the technologies because you don't want to give away you know, all the weaknesses. But the, the testing that the NCS4 does just seems to be really a valuable asset. Yeah. And for us, the operational exercise program, uh, we don't use the term testing very often because it's an uncontrolled environment that we deploy technologies in. We're wanting to see uh, technologies in the space that they're going to be operating. So the operational exercise program, what, what it's designed to do is, is 
provide service or solution providers with an opportunity to, to demonstrate their capabilities. Uh, we see a lot of, of information being advertised and promoted as it relates to technology. So this is an opportunity for them to deploy at a live or, or simulated event uh, to where we can bring in practitioners. Practitioners are really the driving force behind this program. Uh, they, they, they help to, to define the criteria when we first stood it up, and they're always present to help evaluate the exercises um, and, and to, to provide feedback that's going to be valuable to readers uh, moving forward. Hopefully other venue operators who are looking at potentially making changes or incorporating new solutions into their environment. So the, the program itself is uh, primarily an information tool. It's, it's, again, intended to educate practitioners on uh, potential solutions and, and provide feedback to other experts. Uh, those reports, the intent and the goal is to drive further discussion and understanding surrounding those solutions in technologies. Yeah, that's great. And, and just to follow up or maybe hone in on one of those, you know, the new security scanners, which, you know, I've seen several of the different uh, models in, in live situations. And the, the one thing that sort of stands out is when people encounter them for the first time, they really aren't sure, like they feel guilty, like they'll stop, they'll put their hands up, the, the people are, you know, they have their phone out of their pockets. And, and I think some of that is, while people don't like standing in lines, I, I think they are sort of comforted by feeling, well, if I have to do this, everybody's going to do this. And, you know, it's a it's a safe environment because they correlate it, you know, maybe to the more much more intensive searches, say, at airports. So the questions I hear you are, are these are these new things safe? You see people walking through. Was I scanned? You know, is this is this really happening? What have you guys, what is it the NCS4 sort of learned from these operational exercises? I, is the new technology working? Is it, you know, is it up to snuff? That's a, a great question. I'll start off by addressing the, the, the fan perspective. That was kind of the first part of some of your right. question there. Um, the survey, the spectator survey that, that Stacy had mentioned, what we did see in that survey output was that uh, the majority of fans that were polled desired security measures to be visible. They wanted visible security measures. They wanted to see that they were safe and secure when attending an event. Uh, the venue also, I mean, I'm sorry, the survey also indicated that there was a large majority of fans who wanted to, to be into the venue within 10 to 30 minutes. So they wanted to, to be able to quickly get into the venue and they wanted visible security. However, the survey didn't take into account at the time less invasive security measures. So it didn't take into account the systems that are less invasive than the traditional, in your case, what you just mentioned, walk-through magnetometers or screening measures. Right. Uh, so I do think that's an interesting point you bring up, and it's something that we have to explore as we start crafting the, the next iteration of the survey. The second part of your question, which, which you had asked, I think venues really need to ask themselves what their risk tolerance and needs are. In some applications, uh, traditional walkthrough magnetometers are, are most appropriate based on their footprint. In other instances, they need to address those needs. How, how mobile do they need the systems to be? Um, how easy do they need to be uh, able to, to use and incorporate those things? What are their staffing requirements? What are the standoff distances around the venues? What types of indicators do they need? Uh, sports, it's a very loud environment. So having some type of visible indicator to, to alert staff is going to be important. Those are all things that venue operators have to ask themselves um, about the technology before they, they make a decision. So while one solution might fit great or in one environment, it may not translate well to a sports venue type setting. 
that, that's why we strongly encourage venues to take on the trial periods that a lot of solution providers offer. Um, so being able to add that additional layer of security for that trial period to see how well your staff are going to grasp the new technology, how well it's going to work, what the capabilities are going to be to make sure that it's, again, feasible for what their, their unique needs are. And our recommendation, uh, again, when a solution provider, we, we want them to take on that trial period. And if the solution provider isn't providing that opportunity for the venue, then there are a lot of solutions that do. Um, so really taking the time to, to we, we, we try to put out as much information as we can. We want to educate and inform, but we don't want, we, we want venues to do their own due diligence and deploy the solutions and look at the solutions to make sure that it's the right fit for their needs. Those are great points. And, and I think the trial period is, you know, we really still don't, a lot of this stuff is so new. We really don't have, you know, a history or a, a, a compilation of data saying, you know, we did this, it, it worked this way. Uh, one of the interesting things I've been seeing is how some venues will implement the technology and then have to uh, sort of do a radical shift, not on technology, but on where they place them and the order they place them. You know, do you do ticketing first because that's going to create the bottleneck as opposed to putting security first and then you the bottlenecks inside? It, you know, it's 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 all sort of like a work in progress, which you know brings to the point of sharing more information can only be good. I just have one other quick question about you know another technology that's cropped up, but Facial authentication is an area you know that's just opening up, and and while it's it's really interesting and it's fun to watch, it certainly speeds up the ticketing process. I, I feel like it also opens up a whole another box of questions about privacy, information sharing, and that I know that's another area right that venues are getting more and more concerned about as well. As you collect more information, you have to make sure it's protected as well. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it's it's definitely an area that we've been having conversations around. We have seen more venues this year than ever before that are that are incorporating some type of facial recognition in into their environment, whether it's in ticketing or uh, purchases within the venue environment. Uh, but for us, we're really still in discovery mode with that. As we get through the season and generate some more lessons learned, we're hoping to start building out best practices and additional educational information as it relates to, to facial recognition and some of the, the evolving solutions in that space. Um, we are fortunate enough to have a, a phenomenal advisory board and several advisory committees and a, a technology alliance who serve as, as phenomenal allies as we, we start looking and exploring how people, processes, and technologies come together to, to create a more safe and secure environment. That's great. And maybe we could just wrap up, Stacy. you know, l looking forward, you know, it seems like I know I asked at the start whether, you know, these services and, and information that the NCS4 offers is more critical. I mean, it, it just seems like it's going to get even more important to have a service, to have, a you know, an outfit like this that can really help and become, you know, sort of like the central sharing point, if you will. What what are, are the future plans? You know, are there are there plans to expand, have more staff, more funding? Uh, what what can the venue community do to help, basically? Thanks for that, that question, Paul. Um, you know, I, I believe in managed growth, strategic growth, and definitely developing programs and offering services that are sustainable and something that is genuinely needed uh, by the industry. You know, I, I believe in collaboration, especially working with academic partners, professional associations and government agencies to produce resources, generate new knowledge to address gap, gaps in the field. 
Um, you know, some of our some of our, our goals include expanding our e-learning portfolio. I, you know, I, I covered um, the DHS FEMA catalog courses that we have available, and, and those are two-day in-person courses. But we also have e-learning uh, opportunities, so we would definitely like to expand our e-learning portfolio of courses. We'd like to continue to co-brand resources with other entities that have relevant expertise and ensure we are offering the most current and requested programming at our annual conference and forum events. Um, you know, I, I mentioned we have a board and, and several different advisory committees, and we want to continue to, to leverage their knowledge and expertise to, to strive uh, to, to ensure that we are um, we have the, the right strategic priorities and continue to do the things that we, we do well, uh, deliver quality training to multi-agency teams and security professionals, conduct applied research and find solutions to safety and security challenges, and provide networking and professional de development opportunities. You know, we are a resource center at the end of the day, and we want to do our best to facilitate the sharing of knowledge and tools to help uh, advance the industry. Um, in regards to funding, we're always in search of, of more funding uh, besides uh, our uh, annual grant award uh, with our colleagues at the Texas A&M uh, uh, Engineering Extension Service Center. We also uh, you know, generate funds from our ent enterprise programs to sustain operations, uh, for example, through our annual conference. Um, we're always open for commission work or an investment from someone or some organization who believes you know, in our mission and wants to contribute to uh, our work to fund different projects and personnel to help uh, accomplish uh, our goals. Well, that's great. Um, and I can tell you for all the listeners here, you know, Stadium Tech Report will definitely be following and, you know, doing as much as we can to help spread the uh, great information and resources made available by the NCS Forum. I I'd like to thank you both for uh, appearing on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. We'd like to take a quick moment to thank the sponsors of Stadium Tech Report, whose support enables us to continue our efforts to bring our objective, unbiased, and unpaid for content to the Stadium Technology Marketplace. Our supporters include our co-producing sponsor, AmpThink, our survey sponsor, Verizon, our podcast title sponsors, X2Net Systems and Matsing and our publication sponsors, which include American Tower, Cox Business Hospitality Network, and Boingo. The Stadium Tech Report podcast is brought to you by Stadium Tech Report, the go-to publication for stadium technology news, analysis, and commentary. Technical production for the Stadium Tech Report podcast is led by creative director Dan Grimsley and digital designer Jackie Wen. Web and design work is by David Farris and John David. All contents of the Stadium Tech Report podcast are copyright Stadium Tech Report. Audio, video, and print content may not be reused without the express written consent of Stadium Tech Report.